afternoon. Uh, we need you here by 2.45, for sure. Hold on, you cut out when you said what time. <laughs> yeah, that's what always happens, right? Bad time, it's weird. Um, 2.45, got here by 2.45, make sure you bring your ID. Well, now, see, just got this mic. The Audio Technica has never failed us. This is my old, see this is the old body pack that I used to use until I went to this kind of mic. And then we had that, I had a Line 6 for 10, 12 years. That one died after many, many years. And then we switched back to this and I just bought a mic for it. But that's weird. Yeah, I don't know. The thing I don't like about this one is it does not have a battery meter on it. So I never know how good or how bad the battery is. So the Line 6 told you how many minutes you had left, which was really nice. Um, but they've like upped their price. So much. Just like, so 2:45. Make sure you got your ID, because um, you'll have to have that for when we check in down there. Um, and if you're new, you guys who are going that are new, you know who you are. I have a little sheet for you after the service. So come see me. It tells you all the, you know, other little rules and stuff. It, it's not that complicated. But it just gives you kind of a little primer. I went there, so it's not complicated. It's <laughs> true. So I had a friend a number of years ago describing to me, I was telling Clark this story last Sunday, describing to me how frustrated he was witnessing to his girlfriend this a long, long time ago. He had shared the gospel with her several times, and, and she, she just was not interested. So I, I asked him, I, I said, I asked him, I said, well, tell me about the last time you shared Jesus with her. And the conversation started, well, we were laying in bed the other night. to have. But in fact, 
16. But some other places we looked at last week, Paul, Paul didn't seem to have any sort of special grasp on God's will, where he always knew what to do and when to do it, where to go, and, and where he should be. And so we started our examination of God's will and, and some ideas and understanding it. And this morning, uh, in that kind of vein, I would like to continue with a short discussion of God's will and what I call kind of a practical framework for understanding God's will. Now, before we do that, there is a point I want to make. And that is that God's will is ultimately unified. Now, for centuries, people have tried to understand God's will. For example, question number 19 in Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica is devoted to the subject of God's will and basically amounts to 12 short sermons on the subject of God's will. And you could read Aquinas' 12 little short sermons on God's will in the Summa. And when you are done, you would be three times more confused than when you started. <laughs> because that tends to be what happens with Aquinas. A majority of how we view God's will comes to us from Augustine through the Reformers. So nothing I'm going to tell you really is something new or anything like that. But one thing that's common among both the ancient and modern theologians is the reminder that however we want to break down God's will so that we can understand it better, and, and the way I break it down is very common, but there's other ways, God does not have multiple wills. His will is unified. And except for where he reveals his will in Scripture and how we see it as history plays out, much of it is to some degree inscrutable. We can see this affirmed in places like Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 9 through 12. Paul writes, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So Paul tells us here that God has revealed some things about his will to us, right? The mystery of his will to us. And the all things here has to do with his will as revealed to us, in regards to how he's working things of redemption to unite all things sometime in the future, right, in the fullness of time, in Christ and for his glory. But nowhere in that or anywhere else does Paul nor God reveal to us the specifics of how that plays out in any given event. We know he has a will. We can see because he's given us the end game of that will, right, that all things will be brought together in Christ fullness of time. His will is sovereign. It's going to be accomplished, right? All things are going to happen according to the counsel of his will. But the details on a, how that happens on a day-to-day -day basis, a week-by-week -week basis, decade-by-decade, century-by-century, not given to us. Doesn't outline that. But we can see some of how that works. We can see it in Scripture, right? We know Part of his will, serving this final purpose that Paul's written about, of uniting all things in the fullness of time for his glory, that in that, Paul, Silas, and Timothy had to get to Philippi by way of Troas. Because we know that's how they were directed. 
And so God did what was required to make sure that they ended up there. And in this case, by closing some doors to travel, and then eventually this vision, and that sort of thing. We know that Jesus, to fulfill prophecy, needed to be born in Bethlehem, right? Prophecy says, Messiah's going to be born in Bethlehem. They weren't in Bethlehem, though. So what happens? God gets him there by having the Roman emperor decide to have a census of his entire empire, which caused everyone to go back to their family's ancestral home, which means Joseph and Mary, at the right time, end up in Bethlehem, just in time to give birth in the barn. So his will is accomplished. We know that. Now we also know that God has revealed a variety of commands and principles in the Bible for us to live by. We talked about that last week as God's moral will. That's one of the parts of God's will, right, that he's revealed to us. But ultimately, we have to understand that, that it's not separate from some other part of God's will. His moral will is also part of his eternal purpose, just as much as his will and plan for history. It's all, it's all his will. We make distinctions because it is easier for us to understand things when we break them up and categorize them. And so the first category that we had last week was what we call his sovereign will. And I really want to touch for just a second on why his sovereign will matters. Why should you care? Because, I mean, it's sort of inscrutable. It's sort of some of it you reveal is revealed and some of it is not. It's going to happen anyway. So why do I care? Where his sovereign will is the category of God's will where he's working out his plan for eternity, for history, for redemption, all that kind of stuff. It's going to get done ultimately. It accounts somehow in his plan for all the things that to us are twists and turns and surprises. God has a plan. It's moving forward. It's going to be done. It's why he can promise that even in this life, if in this life we don't receive justice, when we've been wronged, when we aren't rewarded for the things that we've done, when there needs to be payback for those who've sinned against us or against God and never repented, that he'll make it all right in the end. It's all going to be right in the end. That's why he can promise in the book of Revelation that he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering. And that's why this category of sovereign will matters. It matters... Because knowing God has all things ultimately in control and will bring history to a close and Jesus will return and triumph in the end are part of the basis for faith and hope. Whenever, whenever I see, you know, you're on the internet, right? People post, people post stuff on the internet all the time. And sometimes I have to walk away because someone doesn't make any sense. That would be 98% of it. And they'll say, I, I've, I've, got, I've got faith this will work out. Or I've, I've got hope. And my first thought whenever I see one of those posts is, faith in what? Or in who? Hope in what? Or in who? What, what is that placed in? Because faith and hope need to have an object to be, to be relevant. You can't just hope in the universe. If your hope is just in the universe, I got news for you. The 
the universe doesn't care. In fact, I could possibly argue the universe might be out to kill you. The universe might be trying to thwart you. Remember, Romans tells us the entire creation was corrupted in the fall. Everything. Corrupted. Faith in the universe sounds real cool until a hurricane wipes out your home in Florida. Or until a tsunami kills a few thousand people in the South Pacific. I'm going to say when that happens, your faith in the universe was perhaps misplaced. But God in Christ is the sovereign over the universe. Even those parts he has temporarily allowed to be corrupted by the entrance of sin. And so faith in him and the sure hope that he is working out all things for our ultimate good is never going to be misplaced. If he wasn't sovereign, then I would say it's a bit misplaced. Because that would mean he's not in control of all things. If he's not in control of all things, he can't guarantee the things that he's promised. Nor could we count on him bringing his plan for all things to their eventual, eventual consummation. <clears throat> if he's not in control, can't be guaranteed that my faith and my hope are, have a firm basis. Now, that is not to say that he always exercises that control. Sometimes he doesn't. Could he have stopped the hurricane? Of course he could. But he doesn't. Because in his sovereign purposes, which are inscrutable, he has plans for these things. And he's allowed there to be evil in the world. But we can be confident that our faith and our hope are not in vain precisely because our faith and hope are placed in the person who is ultimately able to deliver on every promise he's ever made. Whose covenants are unshakable and whose will is ultimately unthwartable. Now there's more to God's will than just because his, you know, the sovereign will, all things are going to come to pass, he's in control of all things. But that's an important thing because that's where I get my hope and my faith. I can trust my Lord that he's got it under control even when it doesn't feel that way to me. Now we also know that he has revealed some things about his will to guide us in our daily living. Which we called last week his moral will. It gives us the bounds of God's will for our lives. I like to liken the moral will to a fence. Inside the fence, you're good. Outside the fence, not so good. Now, last week we identified this part of God's real will as, you know, the things, anything spelled out in Scripture where God has given us command, He's given us a principle to live by, that sort of thing. For example, love your neighbor. Right? It's a command, it's a principle. Do not return evil for evil. Do not do immoral things. Blah, blah, blah. All these things. His moral will includes all, all the revealed right and wrong sorts of things he's told us to do. Whatever principles he's given us to live by, that sort of thing. 
Now, I call it a fence because it, within the fence, there is a massive amount of freedom for us to live by. The fence is big. And there's a lot of freedom there. I'll give you an example. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now the general principle here, God has instructed us that we need to be doing something productive with our time and our lives. We're not to be busy bodies. But within that moral principle, there's a lot of freedom there. Does it have to be financially gainful employment? Well, no, because some people stay home with their kids. And you know what? Why, the, why their spouse might work for money. I promise you, they're not idle. Yeah. There were days, back in the day, when Jen was engaged in financially gainful employment. And I would have to, because she had to do something, whatever, I, I would have to stay home with the kids all day. Maybe they were sick or something. I'd be begging to go back to work the next day. <laughs> right? And it takes a lot of energy to be doing that. Definitely not idleness. Also, does it mean that you might not need some help at some point in your life? Not at all. Clearly has a lot more to do with attitude and willingness to work than actual dollar amount. It is not outside the fence of God's moral will to be poor, despite what some of those TV preachers are going to tell you. It is outside the fence to be lazy. That's the point. Now, in my opinion, this is where the primary burden of God's will in your life exists. Our first and foremost duty is to honor our Lord Jesus by living out the things he has called us to do. For example, when he tells us to make disciples, we are clearly doing God's will and we're participating in that. Whether that's making disciples here in Cedar Falls or helping the Weens make disciples in Peru or whatever it is. There's a ton of freedom and latitude in how we live out those things as long as we're striving to live within the fence of his moral will. God expects every believer to give some of their time and their talent and their treasures to kingdom work, which is primarily, but not limited to, your local church. Yet nowhere does God give us exactly how much to give of any of those things. Some people say, well, yeah, we've got to tithe. But, well, yeah, you know, we could argue about all that stuff all day. If you actually wanted to give on the Israelite level, by the time you had all the extra stuff in, you'd be at about 30%. So Expects everybody to be part of disciple making. Doesn't mean everybody's called to go to Peru. That sort of thing. If we are basically obeying the Lord and living out our lives within the fence of His revealed will in Scripture, we are a long way to living according to His will for us. And now I know, of course, as do you, we're not always going to do it perfectly, right? And we can all benefit from spending more time in God's Word, learning more of His principles. But honestly, everybody I know, including your 
yours truly, maybe especially yours truly, would benefit from just growing in obeying Jesus' will already as revealed in the Bible. Now the problem, when we move from this idea of moral will, which we've seen is the fence, right? Which God expects us to live, it's the fence. It's the fence, right? It's the fence. So how does God work in our decision making when there's no clear command or direct principle of scripture to apply? I mean, I'm supposed to be gainfully employed or not idle, right? But what of what? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I buy a Honda or a Chevy? No, Honda. The Chevy guys are like, what? How can you be our pastor? <laughs> Should I go to lunch at Carlos and Kelly's recovers? You know what Taylor would say. Carlos. Now the first thing I want to point out about this, because this is a real issue, right? How much, how much, I got these principles, but what about decision made yet? The first thing I want to point out to you, I want to dispel the myth that there is no dot. Now, what do I mean by that? Traditionally, many believers have been taught, and you probably have heard this if you've been in church for a long time, believe that there is a specific exact will for God's life. And maybe you've heard for your life. We've often heard this referred to as the center of God's will, or God's perfect will for your life. In uh, Gary Friesen's book, Decision Making the Will of God, he calls this the dot. God's individual will for a particular believer, the dot. Not creative. Yes. <laughs> right in the center of God's moral will is the dot. Middle of the field. Right? I, I started to debunk this idea a little bit last week. Because if you think about the, the implications of this idea, it literally creates a life where no one can be following God's will for very long. If God's will is the dot within his moral will, that every time I am not on point, I am to some degree not following God's will. Now, theologians have realized this because, you know, there are, there are people smarter than me out there that talk about write books about this. And they've gotten around this obvious point by categorizing another section of God's will that they call his permissive will. In other words, the space between the dot and the fence is the area God permits us to live in, but it's not his perfect will. Now let's think about the problems with this. Okay? There's a fourfold problem here. First, if, if there's a dot, then not being on point and sort of being in this idea of his permissive will is sort of like the idea of just a little sinning. Well, it wasn't that big of a sin. A little sin. A big sin. A little sinning is still sinning. If God's will for my life is the dot, not being on point means then that I'm not following his will. I mean, it seems to me the differences of degree whether we're talking about sin or the idea of God's perfect will do not exist. You either are or you aren't. It's a sin or it isn't. It's not a little bit of sin. It's not a little bit of his will. 
I'm at like 70%. And how would I know? Secondly, if there's a dot, okay, if there's a dot, and God expects us to hit the dot, then it is on him to show us exactly what it takes to hit the dot. Think about his moral will. I can live within the fence only because he has revealed to me what the fence looks like. I can find the fence because he's told me where it is. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to guess. He's revealed it to me in his word. So by analogy then, if God has some perfect will for my life, the dot, it is logical and consistent that he, he has to make it clear to me what it is, what that perfect will is, and not leave me out here kind of wandering in the field, right? I'm in the fence, but I'm wandering in the field, you know, hoping that I don't step in on any cow pies as I miss the dock. Third, if there's a dock, then to be consistent, that means every decision I make or you make has to have some component of God's will attached to it that we have to somehow find. If there's a dock, then whether we have lunch at Carlos O'Kelly's or Pepper's is a decision with eternal spiritual consequences that will move me closer or further from the dot. Is Carlos in the dot? Or is Pepper's in the dot? And what about when I get there? So say I go to Pepper's, because my mom said I should go to Pepper's. We're going to Carlos because that's totally what Taylor wants to go. But I'm just telling you, for example, we're going to say we're going to Pepper's, right? When I get to Pepper's, because I prayed really hard and God somehow has revealed to me that I'm going to go to Pepper's. Should I have a burger or should I have a con sandwich? Right? Because if there's a dot, then part of that dot is whether I have a burger or a con sandwich. I better pray about it and wait for the answer or a sign. Waitress is going to be coming up and she's going to be going, Sir, are you ready to order yet? No, because God has not told me yet what I should have. And she's going to look at me and she's going to go, it's Sunday, and you're one of those religious nutcases. <laughs> no one could or does live like this. And why would God even give me a brain with decision-making capabilities if all the decisions are already made and I'm just supposed to wait for him to leave me a post-it note? You can't live like that. No one can. And the fourth thing, and this is the biggest problem, you know, save the biggest one for last, is that the scripture bears out something completely different. Just look at Paul and company last week. Right? They're flitting around Asia Minor. <laughs> I can't go this way and go into Galatia. Nope. Locked somehow by the Spirit. Doesn't tell us how. So they turn around and go to Mysia. Ah, you can't go there. Locked somehow. Finally, they get to Troas, right? Because it's the only place left to go. There's a dot that if anybody should be able to hit, I mean, honestly, you'd think it'd be the Apostle Paul. But that is not the testimony of Scripture. He's, he and the rest of them spend some days or, or weeks even, we don't know, I don't know, their travel doesn't tell us, wandering around the countryside. Weeks on the struggle train, just trying to find out where to go. 
Read through the Bible. Literally no one in the scriptures seeks God's counsel or praise about every decision they make. It's not there. Because it's not possible. And if there's a dot, then that's actually what you would have to do to constantly stay in dot. In fact, the testimony of the Bible is actually something else entirely. Look at what the first psalm tells us. First psalm. First three verses of the first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaves does not wither, and all he does he so the context is daily life, right? That's what walk means. Live in the, we're not to live according to the way of sinners, or according to the way of the wicked. We're to delight in, or, or in other words, live according to God's word. In this context, the law. Because whoever wrote this psalm, David or whoever else, that's what they had for God's word at that time, was the law. The result is that the person living according to God's word will prosper. Their life will be God-honoring. It will go well. By just following the word. Follow an awful lot like the moral will. How about this nugget from Jesus himself? Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now, now when Jesus tells me how to be blessed, my, right, my ears perk up. I like that idea. If Jesus himself is going to tell me how to be blessed, I kind of want to go with that. He says, what? Hear the word of God and obey it. Whoa. And in neither of these passages or, you know, any of the hundreds that I could lay out for you that talk about our lives and God's word doesn't say anything about needing to get God's guidance for every decision we make. It always says to go back to God's word. And to live according to that. There is no dot. There's no individual perfect center of God's will. The primary means of decision making for the Christ follower is the use of our God-given faculties fenced in and guided by the commands and principles of God's word. The more we know God's word, and the more we spend time with the living word, Jesus, the better our decision-making is going to be. This is one of the reasons, for those of you who have been here a long time, and have suffered under my ministry for these many years. Right, because it's suffering, you're suffering for the Lord. You're getting your crowns in heaven. You know I sound like a broken record when it comes you spending time in your Bible. Because you hear it from me all the time. There he goes again. Talking about getting in the Bible. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Because that's where you need to be. You want to know God's will? And you want to know God's will for your life? Then you need to be saturated in the scriptures. That is the primary place you need to be. You want to understand the world around you. You want to stand God's, understand God's will for, for the world and his plans for the future 
and how you fit into that in whatever way, shape, or form, then you need to be in the Word of God. We'll stop. I had my friend at the start of this sermon, and a little more saturated in God's Word. My guess is, my guess is, he either would have conducted himself differently, or at least understood where the problem was. The principles and commands of the Bible are meant to be the basis for how we live. How we do, there's a fence. And within that fence, a lot of freedom. And how you know where the fence is. with the fact that sometimes in, in the very Bible that I am telling you all to seek God's will in, he sometimes to some people provides specific guidance for certain things. Now it's not the norm, right? Doesn't happen all the time. But it happens enough that we should be able to know when we might need or receive or maybe should expect such guidance. We saw that Paul, as he tried to figure out how to go in Asia Minor, they, they got some help. They were still trying to figure out what, what to do. And finally had a vision. And fortunately, in God's book, there is some guidance on how we are to follow and look for and receive that guidance. And so next week, we will finish our little mini rabbit trail out of the book of Acts and into God's will with learning a little bit of that wisdom about those times when maybe God would specifically guide us for something. Let's pray. Father, it is, uh, in my mind at least, a really wonderful thing that you have revealed so much about what you want many, many centuries ago and cultures that we have to learn about to be fully able to understand everything that you revealed. But nonetheless, you have given what we need for life and godliness, your word says. And so within the fence that's created by your moral commands, by your principles, we have a lot of freedom to live and to enjoy life and be able to serve you and honor you and have a good life. Father, let us all be encouraged to be good students of your word. Let us also be encouraged by your sovereign will that since you're in control of all things, that we can rest in the faith and hope that we have through our Lord Jesus. So help us to see.